Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm a, a bit reluctant to acknowledge at the very start, and by the way, thank you very much, Chancellor Block, for that lovely introduction. At the very start, a few colleagues whose work and friendship have for many years fueled my own intellectual journey. There's always the looming possibility that when you have completed your remarks, they might not wish to be close, so closely linked to you. <laughs> However, in the hopes that mercy will trump justice, I would like to point out three very quickly. First, Professor Joseph Kerman at the University of California, Berkeley, has for more than three decades set an example for writing about music that has inspired several generations of scholars. His friendship has both grounded me and given me the nerve to explore uncharted terrain. Professor Kerman has been unfailingly encouraging to me, even when my work must have seemed bizarre. I know that he is here in spirit today, and he knows what his friendship means to me. My serendipitous first encounter with Professor Richard Lanham, a classicist by training, came shortly after I had been enormously stimulated by his book, Literacy and the Survival of Humanism. In addition to becoming over the years a close friend, he has, in path-breaking books such as The Electronic Word and The Economics of Attention, been my constant companion and guide along the digital highway. He has frequently explained my own work to me when I could not. Dick, are you out there? Say hello. Dick? <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. Finally, I was sitting in a Japanese restaurant on Wilshire near the beach when a waiter delivered a bottle of vintage Jordan Cabernet Sauvignon to my table. After sending it back twice because of what I was certain was a case of mistaken identity, Bob Stein came over to me and introduced himself. He allowed that he had attended one of my UCLA Extension radio series. Quote, you're a multimedia kind of guy. We're going to work together, unquote. And I said, delighted to meet you. I'm Abraham Lincoln. I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't need to. Bob is one of those rare figures for whom the word profit actually applies. With Bob's Voyager Company, we made multimedia history and plan to make a little bit more, actually. Bob, if you're there, just make a noise. Noise. <laughs> I began my college life as a physics major, and science and technology still have a, a, a kind of talismanic hold on me. As a former physics major, I marveled a year and a half ago at UCLA physicist astronomer Ned Wright's virtuoso presentation of a century spent trying to understand the history of the universe. I was particularly struck by the imaginative uses to which he put graphical representations, light cones in conformal space-time diagrams, the three-degree background, the Big Bang, the CMB map from WMAP, velocity versus distance data, and spherical harmonic decomposition. That sounds vaguely musical, doesn't it? But anyway, uh, not to mention having Stephen Hawking refer to your work as the most important discovery of the last century. My favorite thing out of the whole talk, by the way, was atoms are 4% of the universe. Did you know that? Dark energy is 73%, and cold, dark matter is 23%. Wright's presentation led me to ask if we were doing as well in music. Few music buffs are unaware of the fundamental changes going on within every aspect of music, especially the recording industry. These affect not just patterns of music consumption, but the very ways in which we hear and experience music. 
If you have any doubts, walk across campus and compare the number of students with earphones to those without. Applications like Apple's GarageBand and even Pro Tools have produced an explosion in the number of musicians who view themselves, at least in part, as composers. Writing about postmodernism, Jonathan Kramer remarked that technology is not only a way to preserve and transmit music, but it is also deeply implicated in the production and essence of music. We're prone to view technological developments such as iPhones and iPods and iTunes as clear bearers of progress. But the record is probably more mixed. I frequently teach classes of 550 in this very space. And over the years, I've used the thousands of students I've taught shamelessly as an informal database. It seems indisputable that students today enjoy vastly more access to vastly more music than ever before. Indeed, one can think of the Internet as part, uh, in, in part as an infinitely expanding audio sound archive. In the 1960s, your record collection might reflect that, let's say, you were a classical and a jazz buff. A student today is likely to take eclecticism to new heights. But they are also likely to experience more music in a shallower way. I've seen virtually no tools designed to deepen the listening experience, nor have I seen evidence that massive canned listening make the live performing arts more appealing. Walter Benjamin's seminal The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction of 1935 launched the modern debate about the relationship between the arts and electronic technologies. The early explosion of talkies drove Benjamin's fascination with film, in which, with the replacement of the traditional stage actor with the phony spell of a commodity, he saw as inevitable, quote, the liquidation of the traditional value of the cultural heritage. Between 1927 and 1969, his sometime ally, Theodore Adorno, worried obsessively in more than half a dozen essays, including on the fetish character in music and the regression of listening, and the Radio Symphony of 1941, about the listener in a mass, electronically driven culture. In a 1964 essay that rocked the classical music world, Glenn Gould celebrated electronic, albeit still analog, technologies for their capacity to endow performers with near-compositional powers. In 1972, Marshall McLuhan predicted that the inherent visual linearity of Western thought emanating from the 24-character Greek alphabet would be challenged and ultimately balanced by a return to the orality of tribal and medieval European cultures. Benjamin, Adorno, Gould, and McLuhan all died before the advent of the personal computer. Along with ever more miniaturized yet robust digital devices, it has opened up possibilities of mutual and musical and cultural engagement whose roots lie not in the census-driven mainframes of the late 1940s, but as Richard Lanham has shown so eloquently, in the postmodern impulses of Duchamp, Liechtenstein, Oldenburg, Warhol, and Christo. Yet in spite of a slew of recent books that shed bright light on everything from the sound world of the Middle Ages to the impact of digital recording on music production, performance, and consumption, the scholarly community has yet to engage in any serious theorizing about the impact of the new digital technologies on the study of music. 
Music appreciation textbooks continue to present timed listening guides whose utility has never been proven. The New Grove Online dutifully offers MIDI renditions of music examples generated by analog thought. And you, if you go on the New Grove, it's, it's hilarious to hear this stuff, actually. You know, Wagner on MIDI. As do more progressive journals, such as UCLA's Echo. My presentation today is an attempt to further that conversation. Now, I just want to say the sensible thing for me to have done would have been to have presented a work that I finished a little over a year ago that took six years, 6,000 hours, uh, with my collaborator Peter Bogdanoff, um, and taken you through it. I, I, I could have done it in my sleep. But I have a more, um, shall we say, self-destructive, or even some might say suicidal instinct. <laughs> and so Peter and I made a compact that... First of all, when I thought about all the brain power that would be in this room for an hour, it's very hard just to, you know, not hit them with everything you've got. And so I thought, why don't we spend a little time learning about Bach fugues? Um, this will be a combined sort of educational and research venture. What I'm going to share with you are things I've never certainly read in any research uh, context. And I want to start out by just talking briefly about Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, this painting is probably a kind of uh, mass production style painting. That is, the bottom of Bach, his hand, which is really very uh, kind of poorly formed and so forth, uh, and the music doesn't look terribly well or well written out, carefully written out. Um, this is the Bach that we all know, the Leipzig Cantor, who uh, is, is the sort of dignified source of Baroque music, above humor, and so forth. But my colleague, Susan McClary, who I thank so much for pointing... Oh, by the way, yeah, when you're, when you're, when you're Bach and there's only one picture of you, of course, the picture gets made a hundred times. And so you go from this to this. <laughs> this is a sculptor in Arnstadt, where Bach worked briefly early in his career. Um, a a sculpture of Bach that was commissioned by the town. And when it was installed, there was, as you might imagine, a great deal of protest. <laughs> I'm sure your eyes are drawn to the same area, generally speaking, <laughs> that mine are. And we can get this from you know, another perspective. There are those who would say, actually, what is represented here is, let's say, the young Byron or some young romantic, and that if it's really Bach early in his career, he ought to be on foot, busy going off to some new town to hear another organist or what have you. Um, the sculptor is reputed to be gay, and of course, there are those then who also said, well, he was just fulfilling his own fantasies about Bach in making this. But... This guy, I think it's fair to say, has moxie. <laughs> this guy can do. And uh, it's important for what we're about to look at that we have that, that feeling. Um, this is a little book that Bach put together in 1722 called 24 Preludes and Fugues. And I'll just translate it for you very briefly. The well-tempered clavier or preludes and fugues through all the tones and semitones both with the major third, or ut re mi, and with the minor third, uh, or re mi fa. 
for the use and improvement of musical youth eager to learn and for the particular delight of those already skilled in this discipline. Composed and presented by Johann Sebastian Bach, while Kapellmeister to the Prince of Anhalt Kürten and director of his chamber music in the year 1722. This is the piece we're going to look at first. That's some of the most beautiful music handwriting you've ever seen, yes? Because if you'll notice, all the beams that go across follow the trajectory of the music. So if it goes down, it goes like that. If it goes down and then up, it goes like that, and so forth. Um, Bach did this effortlessly. There's rarely a mistake on any of the pages of his autographs or something that has to be rewritten. And he just wrote these 24 preludes and fugues one after the other. Now, of musical youth eager to learn and for the particular delight of those already skilled in this discipline, what, would they, what did he mean by that? Well, basically what he meant was, and for the roughly, I'm guessing, I've consulted a couple of major Bach scholars, we think about 60 people got a hold of this in Bach's lifetime. It was never published. And when they got it, what they basically did was what you do today on Sibelius or Finale. They copied it. That is how you learned a piece of music. Sibelius is quite hilarious, as is Finale, because it basically reinvigorates 18th century practice. That is, the way you learned a piece in the 18th century was to copy it. Beethoven copied the entire first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier because he wanted to learn it. And, of course, once you've copied it, you've got a copy. It's yours. Um, this is very, very important. So, anyway, this particular piece of music, and I'm going to take us now. I could, um, if I sat down and played, for example... Did you find anything in the piece strange? My fascination with this piece started with its last bar many, many years ago. Because I noted that of all the 96 pieces in the Wolf-Tempered Clavier, there was, only, there was only one that didn't end with a long note, usually with a fermata. This one just was abrupt. And so I had thought about this for a very, very long time, and I woke up about three months ago with what I thought was the answer, which depended on another part of the piece. And that's this. 
That is known as a chromatically descending tetrachord, which in Bach's time and well before was a universal symbol of lament. And it struck me that this was a very strange use of this. The wedge fugue of Bach for organ comes slightly close, but not really. It's not, not a very fast piece. Um, that's such a, a piece. And of course, you might say, well, play the piece slower. Tell me when to stop. It has to have, I think, a kind of almost madcap quality to it. And so forth. Now, how would I combine the tetrachord with this shooting idea of full of energy, which comes, and every time it comes, you do, goes back down. Well, you, how many of you could follow the uh, facsimile? Clap if you could follow the facsimile as I was playing. Yes. Thank, thank you, Susan. <laughs> now, this might make it a little bit easier, right? And this would probably make it a lot easier. so forth. Now, as you listen to this, you might be thinking, this piece doesn't have tons of different material. It's fairly tightly organized, but I'm not sure how. Well, all we have to do is go back here and the red is the subject. Did you not know about subjects before? So let's just hear that. In other words, it's on the top at the beginning, right? But it goes to the bottom, doesn't it? And so forth. Now, the part that accompanies the next entry, and remember, in two voices, you can't drop any out, right? I mean, once two are in, you've only got one voice if you drop it out, so you've got to keep going. So now we would have, then... The counter subject, which is the green up there, right? And that is always the same. It always begins with a rest and then it always accompanies the theme, without exception, unfailingly. Well, you're probably asking yourself, what about these uh, six bars as I count them here at the bottom? Well, take a look. First of all, the purple, is it purple on the screen? You know, it's hard. Yes, it's not so bad. This, you see, is very similar to, it's just moved over a 16th note. So he's clearly using the same material, right? And then he's using, right, in the green there. And you'll notice you have, again, these ascending arpeggios. Arpeggios means a chord that is broken. And then a torrent of downward scales. The force, the energy, the Pressure always seems to be downward. We lift ourselves up, and then we immediately try to sink back down. So in this one little passage here, 
we have scales that go up, but then they go down. And so forth. Now, I want you to look at this passage at measure 15 here. I mean, this, what we would call the second system. If There are two things going on here. One is there are these torrents of downward scales. Right? But also, upward arpeggio. But so it's like the force of up is being contested by the force of down. Okay, are you with me? Everyone here knows up and down. Good. There are four bars of this. Second bar. And notice, they keep reversing. That is, what was on top goes to the bottom, right? And who wins? This is very important for my interpretation, my reading of this piece. Who wins? And people often say, isn't that weird that Bach has no counterpoint here? I mean, th those are playing the same notes. You can't do that at a few. Unless you're Bach. Okay, we've now seen everything that's important. So what we're going to see now is we've, we're going to deconstruct the piece and show there are four sets of entries. Are you with me? The entry is, that follows, that is E minor followed by B minor, is always a fifth higher. Always. So three of G major is followed by six, seven, excuse me, of D major. A minor four is followed by E minor one, and so forth. So take a listen. And now G, G major. Hear the relationship? And they're both the same, aren't they? The counter subjects on the top, the subjects on the bottom. But now in the second half of the piece, Bach reverses it. And finally, D minor. So there's absolutely parallel. They come periodically, obviously. And then we have these two sequences. And notice, they're an inversion of each other, right? Here's the first one. Now you hear this exact same thing, except uh, a, a different, on a different pitch, uh, actually up a, up a, up a fifth, um, inverted. Now, I have made these two notes red, even though they could as easily be green, because they are part of the counter-subject and the subject. You never know if, if I go... Now, is this the beginning of the counter-subject? Or is it the end of the subject? Well, it's both. It's perfectly dovetailed. All right? And then our little downward friends.
and now inverted. Those, by the way, are MIDI oboes and MIDI bassoons. They're among the easiest sounds to recreate in MIDI, which takes only a very small amount of information to make it. What are the two hardest sounds for MIDI to recreate successfully? Strings and the human voice. And finally, the very end, which looks like it's going to get out of control here, starts with the theme, subject... Abrupt. Now, this is, musically speaking, this is a piece in which the upward thrust, if you will, let's call it life, energy, the life force, is constantly having to face all of the vicissitudes of life and constantly coming back, constantly falling back. But always renews itself, is with it to the very end. Now, this, ladies and gentlemen, is, this is the final exam right here. Because if you look at this, part one and part two, here's part one here on the left, part two on the right, they are identical except the second one is an inverted version of the first one up a fifth. Are you with me? I knew you were. So we've got this then. Green is the counter subject. But now let's do this. And so forth. In absolute parallel, note for note, until. And by the way, if you buy Sibelius or Finale, these are the two leading music notation programs today, guess what they do? They will invert your line. And what else will they do? Very good. Just checking to see if you're listening. And they will transpose your line. In other words, in 250 years, we're able to reproduce digitally exactly what Bach was doing in 250 years ago. Now, I trust you can figure out the sense of play that Peter and I have when we do this kind of things, and, and I, I'm, I'm sort of responsible for the content. Um, there is a definite sense of play because you're always saying, well, I wonder what it would sound like this way or that way. And it took me a long time, actually, even as well as I know this piece, and I played it for years, to figure out, um, you know, in a participatory sense, with Bach, if you will, how his piece went. I think that this piece really, in a sense, expresses Bach's view of life. He puts in that fantastic, and by the way, a piece if you want to go home and listen to, that is at the same key, and it's exactly the same figure, but the usual slow, lugubrious, lamenting one is the crucifixus from the B minor mass, in exactly the same key as this. Um, this is Bach's, and you might say, you know, people don't think Bach is capable of irony, but I think this is a very ironic view. And that life, life, life is over quickly. In 1720, very likely around the very same time Bach wrote this fugue, he went out on a musical trip with the 
um, curtain prints. And when he came home about three weeks later, his wife was already buried, gone. Um, this is a man who had first-hand experience, as, as virtually everybody in the 18th century did, because it, the infant mortality rate was 50%. So anyway, I think, I think this has a profound effect on how I play the piece and how I think about the piece. And by the way, everybody who plays this that I've heard, with very few exceptions, they play... because we know Baroque pieces are supposed to end that way. Now, when Bach was alive, there's always a question being asked of him. Um, or it's a question that many people have asked since his death, certainly. And that is, if you were Johann Sebastian Bach, would you just know that you were twice as good as anybody else or 50 times or 100 times better than anybody else walking the face of the earth and you just smirk on your way to church? <laughs> Would you have to know? Is there any way you could not know? In other words, did Bach crank these things out and just sort of think, well, God dictated it to me and I should just be grateful that he's blessing me or, or what? Well, I have some proof in this piece that... I believe holds that, that Bach not only knew he was better than everybody else, but kind of stuck it to him. Now, mind you, these are mostly household jokes because, I mean, there's 60 people going to see this piece in the course of your lifetime. But it was his way of demonstrating to himself, nonetheless. Many of you have probably heard of the so-called, or not the so-called, it was called in its own time, the Gallant style. It's a very complicated style, as Robert Gerdingen's book tells us, but it has a number of characteristics and hallmarks, and one of them is, very generally speaking, regular phrase structure. Now, in the E minor fugue, the phrase lengths were, they varied depending on the context. But in this piece, Bach has created a galant, and galant music is scrupulously non-contrapuntal. It is pleasant. It is enjoyable. It should be fresh and invigorating. Um, and there are thousands and thousands of examples of it. But what Bach does is to create a kind of theme that is so gallant, it almost out-gallants gallant. So here's his subject. Well, what is, you know, I mean, what's the characteristic of that? Well, first, is just an ornamented sequence is the next one. That's, again, very gallant in style. Bach uses sequences, but generally not so conspicuously in the first two bars of a fugue. And then, this is the most anathema, the most impossible thing that you could imagine um, a Baroque composer doing. And that is this. What does that have? The dreaded word repetition. You're not supposed to repeat ideas 
within a fugue subject. So he says, okay, well. So all the way through, you have this repeating. And then for his counter subjects, he has my favorite counter subject. This is a great idea. Here it is. Very contrapuntal, right? You're supposed to laugh. There's no counterpoint there. Right? So what he does is, with the exception of two sequences, which again are quite gallant in their own way, um, he, uh, how can I put it? He writes a gallant fugue in triply invertible counterpoints. Now, I want, you, I want to show you this right away, okay? First, the red, right? And now, the green goes on top. Now, does anybody have an idea what's going to happen here? The third, that is the second counter subject, they keep going down. Do you follow me? Red first on top, then green on top of red. Right? And then blue on top of green on top of red. Are you with me? So now we have... And now, what has happened in this one? Can you tell me the second system, its relationship to the first system? Just do your colors, folks. <laughs> blue, green, red is now... Red, blue, green is... Is, is, that, is there a, a method to his madness here? And if you're so smart, what's the one on the next page going to be? All right. Give that person his refund on his admission ticket. Uh, and so forth. Now, so all the way through, and you know, we had a terrific surprise planned for you. I was going to tell you that I have learned how to beam energy up to the screen to make the brick go even when I play the piano. Um, and it was going to, of course, be done by my friend Peter, who's backstage. But then the, the switcher doesn't pass the color red, and so we lose the red if we do it. So, Peter, you want to just come out here and do it? And he, It was going to be a great stunt. Okay, so he's going to bounce the brick while I play. And that's a new twist, isn't it?
How do you do? How'd it go? <laughs> See, there's play in this. Uh, play is a word we're all very um, prone, prone to sort of get worried about because, you know, our freshmen seem to play enough in class as it is. But play, of course, is, is you know, the Greeks had purpose. But play is, it turns out, almost as essential to learning as purpose. And play and purpose, in fact, conspire to work together. So, no, I just was sitting one day and saying, you know, can you bounce the brick while I'm playing? Well, maybe. Yeah, well, let's do it. And so three, four days later, he says, let's try it. Here it is. So that's the kind of learning situation I like to get in with students. Now, this man is basically saying, I'm the best darn composer in the world. I took your new gallant style. I put it in all the cliches that you have. Repeated notes, repeated passages, four-bar phrases. But I did it in triple inverted counterpoint. <laughs> you try that. Now, this sets up our third and final fugue, which is, um, I think, many in the house who know it would agree that it is probably the greatest fugue, um, or one of the greatest fugues, or certainly one of Bach's great fugues. It is, for one thing, in five voices. So if you think about the two-voiced fugue we listened to a little while ago, five must be a real handful. How do I even keep track of five? Um, and the answer is you don't very well. You just sort of, you know, play. But in this five-voiced fugue, I think Bach has done something so extraordinarily revolutionary in his own time that it is actually closer to the spirit of Wagner than it is to anything from the 18th century, including Mozart, including the later 18th century. Um, and that is to have a piece which is not just in five voices, but has three different subjects, all of which are played at the same time in five voices. Okay. Now, in the pieces we just saw, and they're a great setup for this, because they had very clear counter subjects, they had very clear subjects, a start and a finish. This piece has none of them. That is, they go off in different directions all the time. So, the A subject. And so, what happens to go that direction? Then, the next subject that comes in... It's similar, but not identical, all right? And then... That sounds weird, doesn't it? Because the others were... But this is... And that is at the heart of this piece. I'm going to play you two progressions on the piano. So I'm going to teach you enough that you know the difference between the drive to the dominant and the descent to the subdominant, okay? If I'm in dominant-oriented music, I might have, I don't know, something like this.
you feel the sort of strength behind that? It's, it's moving, it's going someplace. My favorite subdominant progression, and I've certainly, I've generally, I've picked things obviously that will sound a little bit more plaintive, but it's still valid. We have this. hear the difference? This piece is a colossal struggle between the orthodox forces of the dominant. Tonality, which had been around now, so-called common practice tonality, from Corelli in the late 1690s, 1680s, um, it was built around a series of dominant progressions. Things like... um, Very powerful. And you could almost regard it as the establishment, as the normal way in which things were heard. The subdominant is mysterious, sneaky, subdued, sensuous, poignant. Um, Goes right through your heart before you know it. It's constantly the struggle. And Bach... You know, to write a narrative, to create a narrative where the subdominant, in essence, doesn't so much win, but prevails, shall we say. In order to do that, I mean, you can't fake it. You have to really create something where there's a real struggle. And I'm going to show you how he does that. And then Peter's going to do the score. I know you're thinking, oh my God. (laughs) 37 play buttons, did he need that many? And the answer is yes. First, five entries of the subject, and just look at these harmonies, and essentially one, two, and five think dominant, okay? Six and four, maybe three, occasionally seven, think subdominant. So here we have a mini harpsichord. Great. There it is. That's the first. And here's the dominant. And here is... And the fourth entry, though, to the subdominant. Listen. And back to the tonic. So you might consider that first subdominant entry as a kind of warning sign. You kind of, you know, kind of a crack. I mean, if your son or daughter comes home and says they won't be coming home just this one night. You might see that as a warning sign, as a subdominant possibility in their lives, all right? Five more entries. How many are in in the subdominant, which is four, the fourth degree? The second line, how many are in the subdominant? Just that one, right? Yeah. Okay, now, green is this wonderful 
it just kind of winds around itself. It has the energy, the motion, the energy to sort of carry this thing through. It would seem to be on the side of the establishment. It would seem to be normally it would wind around the tonic and the dominant and make them sort of more sort of firmly ensconced, if you will. Um, and so let's just hear a little bit of that. Okay? All subtonic and dominant in this whole section, except suddenly comes out of the blue a third idea. And it comes in the subdominant. It comes twice in the subdominant. You can hear it first here. And it comes again. And so forth. So you can see there are subdominant forays, but they do tend to get pushed away. So we had one entry here, an entry here, this third and final theme, right? But other than that, everything is sort of pretty much staying with, and in fact, we get to a huge climax on the tonic, reaffirming tonic dominance. And not only do it's once, not, not enough, let's do it again. You'll see that on this graphic, I was unable to show all the voices where they are. I would get, I'd slip my wrist before I got done. It's just too complicated. But a third one, this is really trying, you know, to say, I am who I am, even when I know I'm not. And then it begins to slip. Six, moving to six. And to four. And then it sets up this big return, this big secondary climax in what I call the C section here. And I call it the C section because the, the green theme drops out. It's gone. Disappears. It's now it's gone. And there's a tremendous sense of absence. I mean, one really, really misses this theme. And it's as if the theme kind of, it didn't have the strength, it didn't have the heart to hang in there. And in the C section, what happens essentially is, and you'll, if you look up here, even if you know nothing about music theory, you'll see that once there are multiple entries, it's tonic, tonic, right? Tonic, tonic. Subdominant, subdominant, subdominant. Subdominant, subdominant, subdominant. Six, 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 one, one, one. They all work together because they're in the same key. But this climax, you've got six and three, and then seven and four, and then four and one. It's like centrifugal force that just everything flies apart. And you can feel it fly apart in the music. And then... From then on, it moves gradually to the subdominant. Now, in Bach's time, and he certainly knew this theory, this would have been called Aeolian. This was an Aeolian piece. That is, a piece with a C-sharp tonic, but with a subdominant sort of inclination. Um, but there are, of the A theme, dee da dee dum there are 23 of them. 
and 12 of them actually are in the tonic or the dominant. They are, you know, the sort of establishment, the heart. So there's this galactic struggle between these two. And in, in essence, this is the same kind of struggle we find in the harmonic trajectories of, of Wagner. I'm not exaggerating when I invoke Wagner here. And in many ways, Wagner is the composer who takes the complexity and nuance of Bach and, and develops it even further in his own music. Are you ready for me to have Peter come out? Peter? Back by popular demand. <laughs> Clap if for the last half hour you have no idea of anything I said. <laughs> and we'll turn on all the colors so you get to sort of see all the answers as they go by.
Do I have five minutes to talk a bit about Chopin? That was mixed, I think. What I want to say about these fugues is I think that in the process of going through Sibelius and all the stages we do to get the bricks working and so forth, that one somehow learns the piece. Now, I wish I could say that you could just look at the piece, open the music up, and look at it closely and learn the piece. And there may be people in this room who do just that. But my experience with students is that they really only learn when they're directly involved with the material, when they're wrestling with it themselves. And uh, I think this technology has at least the promise of making that learning about music. And by the way, it makes no difference whether this is a minimalist piece or a you know, Schoenberg 12-tone piece or some freaky modern piece. Well, it doesn't matter. Um, the, the possibilities, I think, are, are the same. Let's just talk, okay, very quickly about Chopin, then I'll, I'll, I'll make this very brief. Uh, this is a different kind of guy, obviously. Um, <laughs> That's the Delacroix of George Sand and Frederick Chopin. I think she has, she has that, suggests that she has that cigar in her hand, doesn't she? Um, but the artist, the artist Chopin is an alienated, shall we say, artist, if that's fair to say. Um, he was an outsider, uh, even, even to his own contemporaries. And his longing was for a kind of imaginary utopia, you will. I mean, it could be at Nohant or, or any of the places where they spent summers and so forth, you know, a, a Cartesian monastery in Valdemosa and so on. Um, Chopin never found home. And the fact that he was very sick from his early 30s on uh, also, you know, played into his view of life, obviously. So he never, he writes letters where he talks about the surroundings you know, George is over here, and so-and-so's here, and we had company here, but he never says a word about where he is and where he works. So that sense of alienation is there. And about the time Chopin began writing waltzes, and th there are different views of the waltz. W one is this, you know, rather, you know, sort of staid English couple from the late 1820s. Are they having a good time? Not as good as this couple. <laughs> the waltz was, of course, the first contact sport in dance. You held your partner, and it took over Europe. And its amazingness is uh, verified by the fact that it lasted, really, uh, more than a century, which is, in Western culture, a very, very long time. And people are still writing waltzes. Um, so, and of course, all of its contexts, this kind of context, for example, and that's Johann Strauss up there with his orchestra, people dashing around the floor, and this is a, a couple having a really good time. <laughs> and notice again the, the wonderful exaggeration, right, the leg, the little pointed shoe, and so forth. Um, and of course, the whole notion of trance. If you look at this, I mean, this, by the way, is a ball, and that's Johann Strauss conducting. But it's a ball in which the whole idea was, and it's not very different, as my colleague uh, A.J. Rossi and I discovered when we started talking about trance together, 
it's no different from the Sufi practices of whirling dervishes. That is, you whirl around. I mean, physically, that's, that's what happens. And, of course, there was always, always thought to be a slightly mercenary motive on the part of males doing this to the females. Um, it might be a little bit easier to take advantage of them and so forth. But it was a madness that really seized Europe. And paintings like this, of which there are many, um, illustrate this. Now, the waltz was so popular in Europe that when you died, you had Strauss and his orchestra come play waltzes at your funeral, which is what is happening here. And there's Strauss, Johann Strauss, Jr., the Waltz King, around 1899. And notice the angelic cherubs, but there's also the one with the, you know, about to whack the bass drum. And then you have the panoply of great, you know, long-haired artists, most of whom can be this Brahms and so forth, all of whom can be identified, and he's the king. Not Brahms, not Schumann, not Schubert, not Beethoven, no, Johann Strauss, Jr. Now, the piece we're going to talk about is, how many of you can guess what piece I'm going to play based on that? the whole thing because of time, but anyway, you all know this piece, yes? It's the second to last waltz that Chopin wrote, and it's the only waltz he wrote that does not end with a repeat of the A section. In other words, most waltzes are a chain, A, B, C, D, B, 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 whatever, but they end in A. This waltz goes A, B, C, B, A, B. And this sketch that you're looking at on the stage here, here is the part I played, the slow part I played, okay? And then here is the right? Okay? Are you with me? And then here is what becomes the C section ultimately. It doesn't have a key signature, but it does. In fact, he kind of peters out here on this page. Isn't that great? I want to thank my colleague, Walter Ponce, for being gracious enough to let me play for him last week or week before, but also then putting this book in my hands. With, these are very hard. The Bibliotheque National doesn't like to give these things out. Um, so this is very special. Thank you, Walter. Anyway, here we are with a later sketch of the piece, and it's much clearer now, right? And so forth. And then you have and so forth. Um, and it ends there. And then you have this C section here, the D-flat easy section. This is the section that sounds like a respite. 
and so forth, right? It, 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 either it's, it's a rescue effort or it's an illusory unreality, okay? Now, then the question really is, is what is, what is the way to play this piece? Chopin has, and it's a, it's a real misconception people have, that he marks everything very carefully. He doesn't. In this piece, there are no real tempo markings. The first tempo marking of the first section is tempo giusto. If you know that tempo, that's my, one of my favorite tempos, actually. That means the right tempo. So is it this? This is um, Eugene Dalbert. Okay, he's moving right along, right? Or is it Evgeny Kissin? Now, the interesting thing about this list of, of pianists that I put together is uh, nine or ten of them um, make their recordings before 1930. And in fact, the very first one, Vladimir de Pachmann, is born the year before Chopin dies. So he, there's some, some connection, obviously, there. What does he do? Do you notice that every chord, every time there's a harmony, it's broken? He plays the right hand first often and then brings up the left hand and it'll sound a little arpeggio, if you will. Um, and then in the B phrase, what did he do? He just played fast, right? And here's, here's an artist who plays even faster, Alfred Cortot. And how you play it, it doesn't just matter you play it slow or fast, it's really how you read the piece. That is, what is the relationship with this B section to the A section? Are they joined at the hip? It's a little bit of a problem because off one time the B section comes before the A section, which is why you can't really say they're all one section. But is that second section, does it redeem the first section? Is it a commentary on it? What is actually happening? So here's Corto, and let me just start him right here and then let him go into it. This is a Swiss-French pianist. Now listen. Now, that recalls the virtuosity of Paganini. That, that really sounds, and it is, I think, in terms of the interpretation, diabolical. And you can imagine that this, that this you could argue C-sharp minor and so forth very well. By the way, there's a lot of places where Chopin takes a page from Bach, right? We have half step, right? Half step again, 
and so on. All the way through, there's that kind of insinuating chromaticism that was known, there's no question, Beethoven also in his Opus 131 Quartet takes the Bach model and, and, and exploits it. Um, my favorite person of this B section, and this is the section, this is the money section, right? This is, this is where you sort of, um, you know, get goosebumps on, on the ladies, um, if you can. And, and here is Paderewski, and of course Paderewski was the Prime Minister of Poland, and people make fun of him now because his Chopin edition is such a, a, a kind of a mess, and there are a lot of later recordings where he doesn't sound very good, but he's a wonderful pianist, actually, and he wasn't re regarded as so good for no reason. So anyway, here's, here's what he does, and tell me this doesn't give you shivers. You got that? He, he made the tempo 150%. Now, the last, the last thing I want to say is everybody who was recording before 1920, 25, even 30, breaks chords puts the treble on first, called asynchronization, and so forth. They, almost all of them do it. Occasionally, one like Leopold Godowski doesn't do it. It just shows it, what you weren't forced to. You didn't have to, but most of them do. But afterwards, none of them do it. And I just want to play an example, last example, of how the two waltzes competed. We had the Viennese waltz, whose images we saw, and we have the French waltz. Now, the French waltz is umpapa, 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 okay? Chopin, of course, spent time in Vienna in the 1820s. He knew the Viennese waltz. And this Viennese waltz is umpapa, 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 umpapa. That is, two comes early and three comes late. If you ever watch on New Year's Eve Willie Boskowski on public television, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so here's Mr. Bielowski, who's born in, of course, 1896. He's somewhat later. Turns out he spent a great deal of time in Vienna. And, and knew this. You know who does a little bit of the old Viennese waltz is our friend Liberace. Hear it? Not every bar, but. Anyway, you get the idea. Nobody after, uh, born after 1919 breaks notes ever. Mr. Kissin, Mr. Battersby, Mr. Ar my own colleague, Mr. Margulis, Leonard Pinario, anybody you listen to. Um, breaking is now absolutely forbidden. It's a, a universal sign of bad taste um, if you break. And it's tragic to me that students don't get a chance to listen in this context, where they can just go from one to the other very quickly. Um, and rather than checking out 25 records, or by the time they put the next CD on, they've forgotten what they heard on the first CD, which is typically what happens. Um, I actually had a close, but I think my best close right now might be to sort of say thank you all very much for coming. I've enjoyed talking with you about this new technology. And
it is late, but we would like to give Professor Winter a chance to answer one or two questions from the audience. If we could have the lights come back up. And we have people in the audience who are going to... Now safe to leave. <laughs> so... There's one down here. Please. Malcolm <laughs> My colleague, Professor Emma Lewis Thomas. Okay. My question is, I mean, uh, my knowledge of the Chopin waltz is obviously the waltz that was played for dance. And none of the recordings that you played are waltzes for dancing. They are waltzes for listening to. And so I wanted just to sort of pose the question, since you know so much, probably more than I do, about dance history in the 19th century, how do you relate those? Because there's a whole other school of playing this that is for people to dance to. And I was talking to my colleague about exactly where you put the... Yeah, we know that in Chopin's time, they didn't dance to his waltzes. I know that. And by the way, I think it's a mistake to say that they're um, stylized, like we often say about, you know, Baroque dance, that the menuet is stylized, they can't really dance to anymore. Um, I really like to think of them as fantasies, as illusions, as imaginations of Chopin. Because we know Chopin didn't dance. He didn't go to dances. He didn't observe these things. It was in his mind. So they're, not, they're, they're less stylized than they are kind of you know, fantasies about how he feels. But in the late 19th century, what you're describing grew up. And you, you had you know, tons and just ballets, of course, that used Chopin waltzes. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to, to, to watch the music, to listen to the music under these circumstances. Because it has to be pretty steady. right? And all that Chopin marks in this waltz is tempo giusto. Then he writes, second section is called... Pio moso, meaning faster. The next section is pio lento, meaning slower. And the next one is marked pio, um, uh, pio moso, faster. So, I mean, there's, there's no real sense. And, of course, everybody, especially the earlier pianists, take tremendous liberties. And I believe those are the ones that Chopin had in mind. <clears throat> I played ballet school for a very long time in Chicago. <laughs> I can play you any Chopin waltz metronomically. <laughs> I was going to play you the Sibelius version um, of, of the Chopin C-sharp minor waltz, because you'll have never heard the waltz and, you know, this way, unless you had it being played by a machine. Um, so, it, it, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I got to the point where I could, thought I could make some music out of it. But the, the thing is, there's just such wonderful pieces in the loo, right? There's such fabulous, glorious pieces. And, and modern people, modern dance, <coughs> uh, whether, whatever their background, do use this because they are not sticking to those strict... Uh, metronomical uh, systems that, that one uses when one recreates dance. Right, right, right. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you. Good to see you. We'll take uh, one more. Oh, the one just, Judy. You were going to ask a question. Bob, if, if Chopin, if, I'm sorry, if Bach met Chopin, what do you think he would talk about with regard to music? Well, Chopin adored Bach, Judy. Absolutely adored him, idolized him. And there's a connection between the C sharp fugue and the C sharp waltz. Um, I think that Bach would always be very curious about Chopin's, you know, milieu, about the life and so forth. But I think Bach would also say, I want lessons in counterpoint. <laughs> Can you give me counterpoint lessons? Because in his very late works, last year or two, so Opus 62, Nocturnes and so forth, Chopin is creating a new kind of romantic counterpoint, if you will. And I obviously, just like Schubert in his last days, wanted to take it so much further. Um, and I think he would have just, just badgered Bach until he got those lessons. 
Thank you. Well, on behalf of the entire audience and the Academic Senate, I'd like to thank you so much for your lecture today. Videocassette copies of this program are available for purchase from the UCLA Instructional Media Library. Call toll-free 1-877-958-2200. Additional information about the people, places, and ideas discussed in this program is available at our website, www.webcast.ucla.edu. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.